Hi, I'm Caroline, a yoga teacher with a special interest in menopause based in Edinburgh. And hi, I'm Dr. Clara, GP with a special interest in menopause based in North London. Together, we are the Menopause Sisters and we're here to guide and support you through your menopause journey. Welcome to the Menopause Sisters show and we're really pleased to have Dr. Angela Wright with us today. She is an experienced UP and clinical sexologist with a special interest in women's health and she's also a British Menopause Society accredited advanced menopause specialist just like Dr. Claire and consults at an NHS menopause clinic in Hull focusing on menopause, PMDD and sexual dysfunction. So gosh a lot (laughs) a lot of expertise in this room today. Um, really welcome, Angela. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Can we maybe just begin with why you went in this direction? You know, where, where at what point did you decide you wanted to go 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 in this direction? I mean, it's, it, I'd like to have a really good reason for doing it, but it was one of those. I was a part-time GP. I'd been working in hospice medicine for you know ten years or so, um, and looking to add another string to my bow. And I really just went down the route of looking at various courses that were available. And the syllabus for the course that I did in clinical sexology just hooked me from the beginning because it was all about you know the forensics, relationships, sexual trauma just a lot of stuff that I think we we touch on and go into as GPs but get really little training on so I did that purely for interest and then added on the sexual medicine training on the back of it because I felt I needed more kind of medicine to underpin it than just the therapeutic training um, and then started using it at work with with women who are going through menopause so the menopause bit was the last thing that I added on I did the BMS training last really it's interesting this kind of connection as well as you were just saying with menopause there you know sort of linking it in quite quickly to that because we know so many women struggle with so many symptoms around you know the vaginal dryness um the loss of libido and actually just being able to have that extra expertise must be incredibly helpful in supporting women yeah i mean i just have been consulting this morning and i think it's i often talk to women and say because i was trained in um what's called a biopsychosocial model so we tend to go in as menopause specialists kind of there's lots of biological stuff happening isn't there so it's quite easy to say well I know you're going to need more vaginal estrogen you're going to need lubrication you might need testosterone but actually I think there's quite a lot of psychological stuff that happens fairly predictably around that age that we go through menopause around that transition that change in identity there's a lot of relational stuff that happens at the same time I think people's trauma we're talking about trauma today but I think it comes up quite a lot for them at this point as well and overlaps with all the vasomotor symptoms so I just think in all those areas sexuality has you know it can change and it's really helpful and I get asked a lot about it because you do the the bits that are biological the bits that are hormone related but it doesn't always fix everything and then it's what do you do with women where there's still a problem yeah and that's exactly how we um, connected wasn't it it was um it was actually Rebecca Wicks, Wicks who's a, a pharmacist based up here in Scotland and she'd said I think you've got to meet <laughs> Angela she said she's just kind of hooked us up via LinkedIn actually because I think she should be really interesting to talk to and, and because of my trauma-informed work and your trauma-informed work that's that's how we actually connected and, and as you mentioned you know many women have experienced a sexual trauma so you know how does that play out or it doesn't have to be sexual trauma um, any any trauma within their lives and the history of their of their lifetime how does that play out in menopause i know there are two i've seen two or three very small studies out of the states that suggest that that symptoms are are worse through perimenopause and menopause if you have experienced a, a trauma but i wondered what your experience was just from you know from seeing patients 
Yeah, just clinically. I mean, that's what you instinctively feel, isn't it? I think it's because that same kind of final common pathway that we feel our sort of anxiety through that, you know, the um, palpitations, the feeling sweaty, the feeling on edge. I think that's got huge crossover with um, PTSD symptoms. And so I think, like you, I've seen the same small studies that have come out. We started collecting data locally. I'm involved in a, I'm a director for a local trauma centre and we've got a database of 3,000 women that are signed up. So we've been doing some, collecting some data on those women, just about what happened to their PTSD symptoms as they entered perimenopause. And lots of them are reporting that they intensified. And again, I think it's that that sort of biological state that we get into allows those symptoms to feel like they're intensifying. But also, we talked about it, didn't we, this sort of mind-body connection that when your body feels anxious, your mind starts to feel anxious. And I think it just gets into a bit of a vicious cycle. And it's a big identity change. So whenever we change our identity, we, we kind of work out who we are, where we've come from. So I think a lot of these themes come up for people around this time. Yeah, and I, I was quite interested as also as a as another a GP. I, I'm quite interested in that kind of biopsychosocial model and how we often say holistic approach, don't we? we? We but do we really do we really mean it? And I wondered if you could just explain a bit about what that might mean and how that might look for some of our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's true because we're trained, or certainly I was trained, and probably you've been trained in a more biomedical mm. model, and it, even I think historically in medicine. We we have a set of notes that are psychiatric notes. We have a set of notes that are medical notes. We even have different buildings and wards for people because we put this false distinction between what's happened to us and you know and our physical health. To do the qualification that I did, I had to do 50 sessions of personal therapy. So as well as doing the learning, I was kind of experiencing what it's like to go through and sift through my sort of previous stuff that comes for me and it's just changed enormously how I approach consulting with patients it's actually made it quite difficult in GP and NHS because there's all these little boxes and rabbit holes that I want to go down and I haven't I just consult slowly and tend to run late but I think it's understanding that you cannot separate the three things from each other that your physical health um, intrinsically impacts your um, psychological health and vice versa and we live in systems and relationships and and cultural settings that influence our access to healthcare, our knowledge about ourselves you know the kind of personal power that we feel we've got within relationships how we consider that we might change uh, you know it, it making changes with health and relationships and things so how it plays out I mean how I try to make it play out is that I try to ask people a bit about that context that I'm seeing them in so I'll explore a bit about I'll often just sort of put it out there in a you know are there any relevant things happening in your life I'll often ask about whether there's any historic traumas and whether that feels like it's having an influence at the moment but I think therapists are often really careful that if they unpack boxes they know they're going to be able to safely help people hold it and pack it in again maybe that's more difficult for us in general practice. And we, we see them over a long period, but I'm kind of mindful about being careful how I, I sort of go through that stuff with patients. Yeah, and particularly when we're talking about, in, in this case, maybe sexual trauma and that transition in the perimenopause, that's quite a difficult path to navigate sometimes, isn't it? Because you do need to have the correct language and use the correct words and also take the correct cues from whoever's sitting in front of you yeah. to be able to manage that. And I, I wondered, is that something that is, is that something that we can all approach differently? How would you suggest that that's approached, you know, in that it, in that initial perhaps first consultation or is that something that just develops over time and with the rapport that you might build up with a client? I don't know I think it's important that you're always 
it's aware and open to the fact that there may be some backstory that you're not aware of. And I suppose we all instinctively know that anyway. Mm-hmm. And I was taught when I was doing the sort of the therapeutic part of my training that really it's just about curiosity. It's about asking why and having that. And I think I do that naturally and probably you guys do that naturally anyway. I think people that end up in this kind of work, you're kind of curious about what's happening and why. Um, but I think there are things that we do that can potentially be jarring for patients that we're not we're not trained to think about in certainly in the medical training that I had. I didn't get very much training about trauma and, and how what's happened to people might impact them. So I didn't I, I would like to think I was always a respectful person examining patients, but I didn't explicitly go into examinations trying to put the patient in control of that process and giving them explicit you know, consent to stop it at any point if they didn't want to continue. And I think my training has made me much more conscious of my ability to accidentally re-traumatize people or make them feel vulnerable in intimate examinations. So much so that I, I got involved in just doing a little bit of video work, actually, um, for some for a campaign being done by the Survivors Trust called Check With Me First. And it's just the idea that we, we truly need to do something as simple as that, that if we're going to examine somebody, ask if they find those kind of examinations difficult, ask if we can do something to make it easier um, and make sure that they know that they can stop it. And I I think that's probably something that's something that I keep trying to put into other things that I'm involved with now, because I'm kind of shocked that that was never made plain to me before I started. And I'd never really, you know, never really thought about how difficult it is for lots of our patients when we cross those boundaries. And I think, you know, as a as a medical student, certainly as a GP trainee, we always taught about, you know, offer the chaperone. Yeah. But I- it's more than just offering the chaperone, isn't it? It's about telling our GP trainees and teaching them that actually asking consent and, and saying stop and it's it's yeah, that's okay. Um, it's a handing over of power, isn't it? Something about the dynamic in a consultation. And I think it's probably getting more equal over time. Our patients are much better at challenging us and asking us questions and holding their space. But people who haven't had a good experience of doing that in the past are probably going to find that even harder. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be mindful of making it explicit who's in control. And actually the person who should be in control of any examination should be the person whose body it is. Mm -hmm. So and I I was exactly the same as you. I was taught about consent. I was taught to be, you know, to be respectful and to be observant and to do all the kind of good practice that we take for granted but I still think it's really helpful to be explicit about handing that over because one trauma response is to freeze and to go nonverbal. So your really quiet patient who looks like they're complying with an examination and is fine might be being re-traumatized and we need to be mindful of that. It's interesting because, you know, everything we're discussing here, it relates to a trauma-informed approach regardless of what you might be doing, you know, handing power over and making sure the person that you're working with or helping or supporting has that agency um, and giving them a voice with the trauma reformed yoga approach it's very very similar um and it's you know it's it's about anything from how we dress and guide a class making sure we're fully covered to the language you use and using that invitational language and making sure they they have the language or or the hand signals they need to stop or change anything they need to um so it's, it's a fascinating conversation because i know the scottish government have got a um, a national trauma training program and i think it might have got halted at some point because of covid and i'm not sure how far along they are with that but that's you know that's their goal and their plan to ensure the workforce is trauma informed 
informed of trauma aware. And as you say, Angela, it pervades everything. You know, we've all possibly experienced a trauma, whether that's, you know, a death of a parent or a loved one, to just anything that has changed our, the way we live, you know, has adversely affected us. I have a friend who went through um, the bereavement of her eldest son and she got frustrated having to spell out that there was something relevant recently in her life that was affecting her experience of things and I think it is about that shift so that we always try and put our patient in context we always try and find out what's been going on for them recently whether there's been any major events and yeah absolutely that not all trauma is going to be sexual trauma but it's all going to have its impact on how we experience our health. We're not going to get it right all of the time you know I think there's that element as well of of, of that understanding but looking at the bias and lenses sometimes we have perhaps and, and and I'm picking those from our personal personal experiences as well isn't it there's a, there's a lot of work around this whole trauma informed and trauma aware approach to be done well I really enjoyed hearing from you earlier Andrew is just you know that idea that we separate our hospitals out into psychiatric and into you know and that and of course you sort of know that in the back of your mind but it's really interesting isn't it because we do the same with ourselves and actually we we separate uh, patients' problems out, and um, we we have a distinct kind of line, don't we? One specialty, we only deal with one thing. And as a GP, we're sort of trying to be a bit more biopsychosocial in a way, mm-hmm. um, and I guess I guess it's really important to remember that we aren't just we aren't just our libido. Our libido is not just about kind of hormones it's multifactorial isn't it there's lots of issues around libido it's not just going to be about testosterone or hrt Mm. but equally you know there's going to be a lot of other things that affect that aren't there and and remembering that and i guess talking about it it's easy to think about but it's when you're in that situation it's really important to be able to remember that you know that awful day at work is going to have a negative impact on you or that bad night's sleep is going to have a negative and it's just getting our heads around the fact that it's not just x plus y equals z for example you know it's just there's lots lots of other things going on yeah I think and I think the power of so I think dissociation and distraction are really important when it comes to sexuality and you know lots of so I do quite a lot of work with uh, Maggie's and women that have had cancer and part of that is the induced menopause stuff and part of that is trying to give them space to talk about sexuality And, you know, think about when you, I don't know about anybody else, but if I give blood or if I have a blood test taken, I will look away from my arm so that I don't feel it quite so acutely. So if you're going through the kind of treatments that we put people through in the process of of treating cancer, you learn over and over again to come out of your body to cope with the really miserable symptoms that you've got. So when it comes to sexuality after something like that, you've actually got to make the body a safe space to re-enter again. And I think that's a really good sort of parallel when we're talking about other forms of trauma, that sort of ability to, to be inside our body during sex. And we get that even with just, just the distractions of, of the average menopausal woman's life when they're juggling, you know, aging parents, children, work that's that's really busy their body's doing different things and and you can easily be up in your brain and and giving your focus to what you're thinking rather than to what you're feeling so I I do like using testosterone I probably use it more than the average menopause doctor might do because I'm doing lots of sexual function work Mm -hmm. and I look at it as you know if you don't have your hormones right it's like trying to drive your car with the handbrake on so you want to get that base layer sorted 
but I'm less impressed by the impact of testosterone than I think patients sometimes believe it's going to be really, really good. And actually in practice, when I start unpicking what's going on with someone's sexual functional libido, it's often one of one jigsaw piece in you know much bigger mm. picture. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that because yes, for some women, hormones will be really, really brilliant, but it's a base layer, isn't it? You've got other yeah, things you need to need to build on on top of that talked about it before haven't we particularly because um the second documentary that came out a few a few months ago now isn't it or three weeks ago you know there was a there was a big push for testosterone and and it's not obvious it's not easily available i should say um through your gp and, and through the nhs and and i think there was a bit of an upsurge in in patients asking for testosterone but you know we, we pointed out and as you, you exactly as you're saying angela you know it might not be this this golden nugget this golden bullet and there's so much else tied up with libido and sex with a partner um, around this stage of particularly menopause as well and wellness and you know all of it is you know because libido is good old Esther Perel who's one of the relationship yeah. therapists that I love in this space you know, she's always saying that libido is really zest for life it's not just about sex it's about it's your get up and go for everything mm-hmm. so you so say yeah testosterone Testosterone is kind of fundamental for for people's energy and their get up and go. And I would never want to, you know, I use it as a baseline in most people, but there's so many other things that we need to layer on, on top of that. Not least women giving themselves, not trying to be too gendered about it, but that sort of permission for pleasure, just all pleasure, you know, to eat things that they enjoy, to drink things that they enjoy, to sit down and do nothing and just be lazy for 20 minutes you know that's out of reach of a lot of us isn't it so yeah exactly wonder pleasure is out of reach for yeah exactly it's 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 absolutely fascinating because Karen and I have spoken about this before and actually allowing yourself to do nothing is is a really big gift but we don't allow ourselves to do that because we always got to be doing the next thing um but yeah I think it's really it's really interesting how um for many years as as and again not to be too gender specific but I'm going to use the word women but women have, mm. have, have allowed themselves not to have that enjoyment um and to be just acceptant that things will change and maybe change negatively for them around the perimenopause and menopause and it doesn't always have to be that way we're very focused on making menopause a positive Mm. transition but you know lives our lives don't actually stay the same you know you're coming to terms with perhaps a loss of fertility or you know changes in within your relationship or like you said Angela juggling kids juggling work and that's I think acceptance of that is also really important yeah yeah there's there's a book that I read when I was starting to do my psychology it's really old psychology training and it's called passages um, and it's just written about life stages. And the, effectively, what it says is that your 40s are about as, t- as psychologically challenging as your teens are, because, you know, you've got you're doing different things at different stages. But by the time you're into your 40s, and I'm again, recognizing that not everybody's menopause takes place in that decade, but you're at the point where you've realized that life is definitely finite, that you are quite a good way into this journey that you're on. And it puts a bit of pressure on if things aren't okay, if you haven't achieved, you know, the relationship that you wanted to be in or the fertility um, aims that you may have had around having children or the work things. Or, And I think that that pressure is often an underlying um, part of why it's difficult, this transition. It's You haven't got forever to fix it anymore and some of the doors feel more closed than they did a decade ago 
Um, so I think all of that's quite a psychologically challenging time. And actually, if you, like a lot of psychological challenges, if you can process it properly, actually you can come out of it in a much more positive place. But it's helping people to do that. And I don't think culturally we're very good still at handholding and helping people through those sort of transitions. Mm. It's relieving those extra pressures. And we realise for many, that's just not, it's just not possible. You know, it's you know, taking those five minutes for a cup of tea or that 10 minute for a walk or those 20 minutes to have a call with someone, a good friend. It can be a huge luxury for so many people. Um, and if we're starting at that base level of self-care and a little bit of time for yourself, you know, in, in that process of, of reaching and thinking about libido, that's, that's quite a big ask for many people, isn't it? There was when I first started training, in fact, there's a couple of things that really hooked me into sexology. And one of them was um, it's a lady who's recently died called Ellen Lahn, and she did a manifesto for the clitoris as a lecture, which was just a brilliant lecture. But one of the things she was saying was that even in young women between 16 and 35, she quoted that a third of them regularly experience pain with sex. But what I found really interesting was, is they continue to have sex so already you're kind of this tolerance that women have um, around putting up with unpleasant things being stoical someone else's pleasure maybe being more important than ours that's already there in young women and then the other thing that she talked about was that people that struggle to climax often there's a study where they said they often struggle to name other pleasurable physical sensations anything because they're so dissociated from their bodies often and I think lots of women with our enormous to-do list that the to-do list at the start of Caitlin Moran's book that she did brilliantly with this massive list that we're all holding in our heads I've got one on my phone which is ridiculous um and life is a constant you know you're constantly ticking that stuff off you're holding the emotional load of everybody around you half your friends you know all of our patients and clients so you do come at the bottom of that list and it's no I don't think it's a great shock that we find this transition knocks us sideways and it hits sexuality in such a big way we have to sort of change something about um, about how we're allowed to prioritise our own needs. It really, it's kind of cliched, but it's incredibly true that doing literally nothing, I, I still struggle with that. I still have to say that it's exercise or I'm going for a walk or, yeah. you know. It's active mindfulness to sit on the sofa and do nothing. <laughs> active mindfulness, that's great, Angela. Yeah, and actually I, I work with a lot of long COVID patients now as well. And, you know, that I have to go through and, you know, we say, you know, even scrolling through social media, you're doing something. That is not resting, you know. Yeah. So actually really stopping. And I like the idea of active mindfulness. I love a walk. Um, you know, that for me, but trying not to then listen to a podcast and trying not to make a phone call, just walking and being quiet is, mm. I think, quite a challenge in itself because we are so used to doing you know it's all do 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 and what are we achieving so yeah. but coming back to, to sex and pleasure at this stage in our lives what what are the first things that that we potentially could be looking at so I have been taught loads of different ways of looking at this but the one that I find is the problem I have is I was taught to be a therapist which means that you, you're taught around doing 50 minute sessions at least 10 of them and I got all those lovely skills and I came back into my NHS day job and went uh what am I going to do with this in this setting <laughs> so so what I end up doing with patients a lot is um, directing them to resources and things that I think help and Karen Gurney the sex doctor is brilliant as in terms of a resource I love her idea of um, a triangle and I use that quite a lot with patients this idea of the the triangle of 
good enough sex or good sexuality. And that is just getting your patients to think about when physical arousal is at its peak. And that's work for us in menopause, isn't it? About making sure that they're well estrogenized, they've got the right hormones going in systemically. You know, with my medical um, sexology hat on, it's going through the rest of the meds list and making sure they're not on things that dampen it down because there's loads of those things. Um, and then there's the kind of, um, I think, did I say phys- this is physical arousal? I may have said psychological yeah. arousal, but this is all physical arousal. There's the psychological arousal, which is all your erotic palette stuff. And it's making sure that the context, the partner, the stuff you're doing, all of that is really a turn on for you and you can get typecast in long-term relationships it can be difficult to to change sexually and actually we're all somewhat bigger than the shared sexuality we have with a partner so sometimes it's about kind of renegotiating what's in that shared space and the bottom bit which I think is the, the sort of most important thing that I talk about with patients is this idea of your your mental presence in sex and just what you were saying about the walking I often start with patients in terms of self-focus, um, sensate-focused stuff, way outside of anything that's sexual and just telling them to go for a walk and to notice what they can smell and notice the feel of the ground around them and what they can see just to focus on their sensory input because it's a lens that we don't have in our daily lives. We're buzzing about like crazy, only really noticing the really offensive sensory input. Like we were just talking about how hot the tube was on the way home for Claire. And you notice that because it's unpleasant, but we're not brilliant at tuning in on the nice stuff, you know, slowing down and eating and going, oh, that's the texture, the flavor. Um, so I think it's something about a, a sort of a pleasure principle and, and defining your sexuality around you. I think, again, not to be too gendered, but I think culturally, mm. um, historically, many of us consider ourselves as partners more than we consider ourselves with our sexuality and what we want at the center. And sometimes there's work to be done around that kind of thing as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just clear, isn't it? The more we talk about it, the more you realize how much there is to take into consideration, not just as as doctors or yoga yoga teachers, but just as, as um, you know, individual women ourselves. And what we need to start to think about is, I guess, feeling less awkward talking about sex maybe Mm. you know maybe just normalizing it a bit a bit sort of how the perimenopause and menopause is being talked about a bit more without that taboo attached quite so much I know it's still Mm. a work in progress but perhaps that's something that we need to become sort of more comfortable in raising and perhaps raising with our doctors I guess the, the the issue I have with that having said that is you know you want you want the response from your health professional to be judged don't you in the correct yeah. way and that's that that if if particularly if we're talking about sexual trauma or trauma in general that can be overwhelming I think that can be a worry to even bring that to the conversation mm-hmm. to bring it to the table and I, I think as well even though there is correlation obviously between people that have experienced sexual trauma and the prevalence of of problems with sex the t- one doesn't equal the other and there are lots of people who don't want to go back to something that's happened and consider that it's still having an impact and it may not still be having an impact as well so I think you, like a lot of things with sex you know I was talking I was at the BSM on Friday and talking about raising sexuality with patients after, after cancer but it's also making sure that it's not a pressure one of the things that I think can get leveled at the menopause campaign at the moment is the fact that some people do want to just, you know, shove a cardigan on and not have to try hard after a certain point. And actually, if we're all still having to be running, jumping, climbing trees, looking hot and having great sex, 
that's that's a pressure for some people so it's it's defining it around what you want and and binning all these kind of cultural definitions or these societal definitions of what you should be should is not very helpful it's it's about what do I want no and I was I was thinking about some of the celebrities um that have been campaigning for menopause and it's wonderful because they've got a voice and they're using it but actually I know for many people just looking at that celebrity, whichever celebrity they quite like, you know, there's many of them campaigning around it and, and doing some great work. But actually, when you don't look like that person and you're like, well, they're going through menopause and they look like that, possibly a size eight or 10. And, and you know, obviously have a lot more money, perhaps, than some of us um, and can afford various treatments and lovely clothes. Then actually that in itself is, is an added pressure. And just as you were saying, Angela, actually, it's, it's OK to be where you're at right now. It's there's a level of acceptance, but also a lot of self care uh, um, and forgiveness of yourself. I think, and, and and but also gratitude. That idea of saying thank you to yourself for giving yourself those five minutes, those ten minutes, whatever whatever it might be, and just you know mentally saying I needed that. I'm really glad I took it, and I'm going to thank myself and perhaps somebody who's helped you facilitate it as well. It's also the language we use. I think you're right about the celebrity that we're seeing fronting this up they look brilliant for their age you know in a way that may or may not be in reach for those of us that can't access some of the things that they're doing and a lot of the women that I speak to talk about self-esteem and they they struggle to find themselves sexy and if you don't find yourself desirable it's quite difficult to put yourself into a situation where you know um where you're supposed to be feeling sexual. So I do think that we can actively work on our language and we can actively work on the stream that we allow into our consciousness, you know, filtering your social media. I I hate how Instagram keeps showing me women in bikinis because I don't really care about women in bikinis and it doesn't help me feel good. And, you know, I I think these are like microaggressions all the time telling you that here's a standard and this is the gap between you and the standard. So you have to, I think you have to be mindful about what you allow in, about the lens that you put on it, what you know why those images are there and what they're trying to do. Um, and using language about your body that is positive and not always appearance based. That's why I like strength training and some of the things in, in like yoga and so on, because we keep trying to be less as women to lose weight, burn calories, shrinks, but clothes sizes, sometimes doing an exercise that's built around gaining muscle strength, ability to do yoga poses, that stuff helps you to genuinely appreciate your body. Yeah. And I, it, you know, I teach a lot around the breath and just that simple idea of breathing well can, it helps psychologically calm the mind. It helps physically because we know if we breathe well, you're supporting all the body systems and, and, re- and reducing stress, you know, cortisol and adrenaline. And we know that's all connected again with, you know, with trauma. And so actually there's all these little things we can do, but I think it's very interesting what you're saying about turning off certain social media feeds as well. I did that a few years ago and that was joyful actually just going, why am I looking at this person? Um, Mine changed at 40. I I literally went overnight. Facebook started to show me things about thinning hair and, you know, clothes for mature women and face creams that I might need. And I thought, I didn't get this at 39 and 365 days. I kind of went through and just, I told them I liked gardening because you can actually change your preferences. So I just told them I like a whole bunch of different things and and changed my feed. Brilliant. (laughs) Love that. I might have to do the same gardening and I don't know. Uh, yeah. tools. <laughs> <laughs> I do get a quite a quite a lot, a lot of trauma feed actually that's what's quite interesting so my other my phone's listening to me or I'm just following those, <laughs> those social media accounts but also very interesting and still learning from it so it's finding that balance isn't it it really really is I mean I guess what we what what I wanted to also 
spend a moment focusing on it. Obviously, I've said that I said earlier, you know, it's not all about HRT and testosterone, but obviously we are talking about the perimenopause and menopause. And it is it is something that we should mention that it can be really helpful, can't it? Because Mm. we're talking about specifically, let's talk about topical vaginal estrogens. And if you're having painful sex, actually what's going to help make that better is is some vaginal estrogen, isn't it? And we know that's very, very safe. Yeah, and I don't know what your practice is, Claire, but I also make a big fuss about using it externally as well as internally. I find it fascinating, again, with my sexology hat on, Mm -hmm. that all of the guidance pretty much is to estrogenize to allow penetration, and it's not really about to estrogenize to allow pleasure. So, um, and I'm a member of the BSSM and they did some guidance last year before I joined them actually, but the BSSM um, consensus statement on genitourinary syndrome of menopause is like the nicest document because it gives you a really good um, evidence base for using estrogen in both places, inside and outside, in higher doses than the licensed dose, because I think the licensed doses are a bit low for most women and using it in women who've had cancer history, hormone history, hormone um, sensitive cancer history. And we see loads of those in places like Maggie's that have never been told that that's an option for them. You know, and it's not just sex. I had a lady the other day who'd stopped riding horses, which she loved doing Mm. because of the discomfort that she had in a vulva. So I have very proactive conversations with my patients, even if they don't come to me saying that they've got these issues. I will tell them this might be on on the horizon and sexual function might change. And if you notice any change in arousal or ability to climax or lubrication to get in early, because after a point you start losing structure, you know, and you have those nighttime clitoral erections that you don't know you're getting. And that's all to do with the blood flow and everything else. And all of that quietly stops or reduces as you get older. And if we don't warn women about it, um, that, you know, they, they have to wait for those problems to be there and then all the psychological stuff piles on the back of I can't climax anymore or oh my goodness I don't he's going to think I'm not interested because I'm not getting aroused and then that makes it really complicated so getting in early is helpful and I often I mean I always put my hand up and say I'm taking vaginal estrogen and it's made a huge difference but actually I was at a um a workshop two weeks ago um some trauma-informed work actually as well with a, a group of women um some from a self-harm unit um some from um an addiction charity that, that have been helping them but we were talking about periods um my colleague was talking about periods and I, I was going through menopause and there's obviously a lot of learning and understanding going on around the cycle and you know when they were feeling down and feeling like they needed a crutch needed needing certain certain things but also that understanding and I was there going yeah vaginal estrogen and this was suddenly the floodgates opened (laughs) you know these women talking about sore vulvas this kind of soreness or burning and and it was a really positive discussion because actually unless we talk about it it gets brushed under the carpet and I hope that through our voices talking about it it enables other women to feel confident about potentially speaking to a, a healthcare professional I think that's and I think it's that's another area where it sort of layers on with the trauma again, because if you start to experience discomfort again, some of these things can actually be quite triggering as well. So I think, yeah, 
I think we aren't taught very much about being proactive. We're not taught about using estrogens in non-menopausal women, actually, the breastfeeding women and the women that are on, you know, things that would feel counterintuitive, but birth control pills can make you get vaginal soreness and dryness. And I was a woman's health doctor and I hadn't really been trained in that stuff. So if we don't know it as health professionals, then I do think um, the access that patients get must be quite patchy. And there's definitely a lot of work to be done in letting them be aware of what their options are at all different stages. We often do suggest that you speak to the nurse at your GB practice to begin with, because they are potentially, you know, a good first point of call and having that understanding is they, they do tend to be the practitioners that do the smear tests, obviously, yeah. and you can have that conversation initially with them if this is something that concerns you, but also around HRT and menopause as well. Yeah, my nurses send me lots of patients now of all ages if, if, because they'll pick up the ladies that have got vaginismus, so that kind of pelvic floor muscle contraction when they come for a smear test. So I, I do get quite a feed of patients to me of all ages because we've picked up that they're struggling with swabs being done or smear being done. Oh, is sex painful? Okay, she's going to talk to Dr. Wright. And I think it, before I did sexology, obviously I didn't see any of these patients. So it just makes you think how many in everyone's practice, uh, they're there under the radar, not being seen. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because as soon as you start to specialise in something a bit more, you start to see that, like Caroline said, a bit like the floodgates opening because it's suddenly kind of giving people, it's allowing women to um, talk about talk about their symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, I think that's really, a really interesting point that, you know, practice nurses can be picking up on these symptoms, um, particularly with vaginismus, with swabs. I think the problem there is obviously more and more, t- more and more of the time, actually what we're doing is self-taken swabs. So women aren't necessarily seeing anybody for those vulval examinations and every every three to five years they're having their smear but you know all that time in between they're not actually seeing anybody so I think it's really important we know our own bodies there is a lot of there are a lot of I mean you're one there's a lot of specialists out there and actually if you're not comfortable seeing one particular health professional within your practice just ask to see someone else and you know, find out who you're comfortable with and, and just see them a few times and build up that rapport before you have that clinical examination. Because there will be somebody, I think, that perhaps you feel more comfortable with. Um, and, and again, it's, it's about feeling comfortable having that examination and, um, you know, having that rapport with your, your clinician, really. I think they're yeah, the barriers, aren't they? So I think that's back, sort of circling back to the bit around the reluctance to be examined or the potentially re-triggering nature of being examined, it's another barrier that's been put up. So I think if patients were get got used to the fact that it's much more usual to be asked and given explicit consent in those in, in those um, situations with an examination, I think that would help. But I agree with you, Claire, I tend to rant about the fact that I've got a 13-year-old daughter and I think that the time that women need to receive information about all of these things to do with their reproductive health is as they go into their reproductive years. So we, I personally believe we should be expanding what we teach beyond not getting pregnant and, and you know, not getting an STI from sex, but actually what to do if you have difficult bleeding with your your periods what to do if you get mood change like how much under the radar pmdd pms these sort of mood disorders that that people experience that they don't recognize for years and years because no one's let them understand that you know you can you can track this stuff and 
in sexual pain. I think I think if we just equip people with and similar training um, education for boys, if we could equip the patients with the understanding of, of what might be wrong with them, it would create the demand that would then make sure that the practitioners actually needed to provide those services. I think it's quite hard to retrofit training on a bunch of doctors that have been working for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got lots of areas. Where do we start? But actually, if you, if you, um, if patients understand, like with menopause, that's what's happened with menopause. They've come up and go, I've got all these symptoms. I need practitioners to see. And suddenly we're training a lot more people to try and meet the demands. So I do wonder if we've got it the wrong way around, that we actually have to train patients to know the words and the language. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, Angela, actually, you know, it's kind of often sort of, you know, we've, it's been cited before, you know, menopause being a second puberty and actually if boys and girls are able to know there's something else coming at the other end, then at least there's the knowledge, it doesn't have to be in depth, but you know, this is, there can be some signposting and just a little bit of information. And I've just bought my three boys a book on periods. They weren't that impressed, I have to say, but I said, you all have to know because, yeah. you know, regardless of you being boys at this moment, you are living with me and you are likely to have to work with and deal with women (laughs) that understanding is important yeah so important and they take it as they you know I don't think that children are naturally embarrassed about that stuff unless we pass that to them I did all of my revision for my um, membership exams for sexual medicine you know over a Christmas period with kids coming up behind me and looking at what I was doing and and you just have age-appropriate conversations around it you know our house is is a bit more complicated in that my, my son tried to explain when he was younger what I did for a job to his um, grammar school tutors and said I was a sex worker. So I had to get him to seriously backtrack in his explanation of what he did. That's, that's a brilliant but, story. Know, yeah. <laughs> Oh, didn't feel so great at parents even no. that kind of they they take it as read that it's normal it's talked about it's kind of you know the doors are open to have those conversations and it's not it's not weird actually it's quite easy yeah actually once you start those conversations and it, it's okay we call sex sexing in our house because our youngest says oh no the sexing if we're watching a film together or he thinks that's sort Brilliant. of like, yeah um and we, we're only watching sort of you know age 12 appropriate films because he's uh, he's nearly 10 but yeah we just call it sexing so you know that, and that's become our word and that's that's fine it's absolutely when they know exactly what we're talking about Andrew, we're probably gonna have to wind up actually but just wondering if there are any signposting um websites you might be able to leave us with or any tips that you'd like us to leave you know like to leave our listeners with as well from a getting help with sexual problems point of view then the best thing I could do is probably signpost you to where the practitioners are so the COSRA website is the College of Sex and Relationship Therapists um, website which is the the college that I I was trained by they have a list of practitioners the IPM is the other approach that we have in medicine which is a slightly different approach but that's the Institute for Psychosexual Medicine and they have a list of practitioners Um, and then there's people like myself that sort of you know, bridge both sides and and can be referred on the NHS and privately. Um, And then I think in terms of sort of, you know, trauma specific stuff, it really depends on the kind of trauma that you're looking for some support with, really. So it's probably difficult to give a list, but the Survivors Trust do do lots of work and they do do lots of signposting to local organisations. So that's a a good name to be aware of. Um, And I, I often... I'd say I like what Karen Gurney's done in her Mind the Gap book. So I often recommend my patients start with that book as a decent explanation of female sexuality. 
really, I, I, when I teach about this stuff and teach doctors on this stuff, I say that actually all we need to do as practitioners is open the conversation. We don't need the solutions to it. We just need to let people know it's okay to talk about. And I think that's what puts people off opening the boxes, actually, in terms of in, in general practices. Well, how on earth am I going to, what are we going to do with it? Mm-hmm. But if we do that, then we kind of collude with the fact that it's somehow shameful or we shouldn't open it up. So actually, I, I think the biggest tip I would have is that raise it and be aware that your practitioner is probably going to be very happy that you've raised it and vice versa for health practitioners. It becomes a joint conversation then because if it yeah. is raised and you know I think a lot of practitioners are really honest and say well actually I'm not sure where to signpost you and I'll come back to you with exactly. that how I can help you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Amazing thank you so much Nigel, for taking your afternoon to speak to us today. Really lovely to connect and I know our paths will cross again. Yeah, it's been a pleasure thank you.